Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Farmer Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Gingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. We're recording on April 8th, 2021, and hope you've enjoyed spring break and are ready for a spring and summer ramp-up of not only vaccinations, but also FDA policy news. First up today, we take a look at the emergency use authorization process that helped the U.S. gain access to three COVID-19 vaccines in record time. Sarah, you looked at the once largely unknown pathway that became a household phrase and how the experience could affect FDA thinking once the pandemic ends. Yeah, you know, um, I've been interested in sort of thinking about this pathway and kind of the regulatory processes of it for a while, particularly because when COVID first started, um, I remember doing stories and you just couldn't find anybody with um, like pharmaceutical expertise that had a lot of experience with the emergency use authorization pathway. Um, because for the most part, um, if you look at the data, it was it's pretty much been used largely for medical devices, in particular diagnostic tests. Um, COVID has clearly changed that. It still gets way more use in the diagnostic testing front than anywhere else, but we've certainly seen a number of drugs and obviously most notably perhaps in many ways the vaccines go through the pathway um so it seemed like this was sort of the first test i think or major test of the pathway if you will um, because most of the other euas for therapeutic or vaccines have ended up kind of either being for pretty narrow populations or just kind of you know an, an a potential anthrax need for an anthrax vaccine for the military is very different than a vaccine that's you anticipate, you know, everyone in the world wanting. Um, so sort of spoke with a lot of experts about, you know, what have we learned from this experience and do you expect kind of that to change this pathway and got really a lot of very interesting responses. I mean, some of the highlights, um, I think, are just that people are questioning whether, you know, a vaccine versus a drug versus a diagnostic test versus a, you know, a personal protective equipment and all those different, every, whether all those things really should have the same standard. Obviously, you know, our listeners know that the standard to get a drug approved versus a um, medical device is and under FDA's traditional pathways are often very different and there's different pathways for different types of devices and a generic drug goes through a different process than a brand drug. So I think that was one thing people, um, a lot of people were hoping to explore. Um, some people suggested for vaccines in particular, maybe we really need to carve out a separate standard if we're talking about a vaccines like the COVID vaccines um, where you know, you are anticipating it's going to be given to large numbers of healthy individuals. Other people brought up, you know, whether we needed to think about, um, you know, the EUA pathway was sort of conceived of in the post 9-11 world where there was a lot of fear around bioterror, you know, nuclear attacks, things where you're just never going to be able to normally do the same types of research you can do in an infectious disease setting because it just won't be ethical um, or reasonable to do that. Um, but in a COVID type scenario, you know, you can do good quality trials if you put your, you know, um, if you put the effort in. So feeling like we really need to kind of clarify 
that, you know, for settings where you can do certain types of clinical research, we should be um, doing that because ultimately, even in an emergency situation, you need those kinds of answers. So um, anyway, it's a pr pretty um, dense piece, so I don't want to keep going on and on. I also looked at kind of the flip side of that of um, the discussion of how COVID maybe will change the EUA pathway to just how COVID in general and the EUAs issued may change FDA. So thinking more about, you know, what has FDA learned from kind of going at this EUA speed that could maybe be applied to its, you know, non-emergency actions, um, which is really interesting. I mean, one point I found um, we're thinking about, and I'd actually heard some other bioethicists talk about this earlier in the pandemic too, is that, um, you know, there's always a lot of pressure from patient groups to get drugs for their particular disease area out faster. Um, and so how much will people seeing FDA move so swiftly with COVID impact um, what people expect from FDA in other disease areas where it may, they may not be infectious, but for the patients that have them, the diseases are rapid, they progress fast, there's no treatment options. And, you know, will that kind of lead to another wave of pressure for how the standards FDA thinks about in other parts of its field? So yeah, that's no, sort of so the, the highlights. <laughs> you, have to, you have to really uh, dig in to read all the, the, the answers, otherwise I'll be here all day, but. <laughs> Well, the, Sarah, that's it. The, that the last part there was was one of the things that I picked up on too. Is that you know, and you know, I, I start thinking abstractly about you know public health emergency, and you know, they've talked about calling you know smoking a public health emergency, and you know, I mean, you, you could you could really stretch that definition, which would you know could theoretically open you know the these kind this kind of pathway to you know, to, to other things. I mean, I guess that, you know, I guess I'm wondering how long before somebody, you know, comes up with the idea of saying like, hey, you know, cancer or heart disease is, you know, that's a public health emergency. I want an EUA for this, you know, instead of, uh, you know, just to get it, to, you know, to get to get things going a lot faster or to get it out there a lot faster. I mean, you know, I mean, whether that'll happen or not, I don't, you know, I don't know. My guess would probably be no, but you know, it's it's certainly something you know that I think people are going to start thinking about. Right, and I think that's where some of the people I talked to said that you know this really comes down to a big kind of public health communication challenge in many ways for FDA and other parts of the government to kind of explain why we have the traditional FDA approval pathways or why we have, you know, accelerated approval or any of the other mechanisms outside of an EUA and what they're doing for patients and why, you know, the kind of the trade-offs of EUAs versus other approvals. I mean, I think it's easy to focus too on the vaccines for COVID, which are, I think most people see as very successful examples of the EUA pathway. Um, and, you know, forget about some of the very high profile um, examples where a lot of people think FDA did not maybe make the best decisions, such as in the drug space, hydroxychloroquine, convalescent <laughs> plasma. I mean, even when I when Brandesivir was um, given an EUA, I think a lot of people were concerned about some of the data or the design of the trials um, there. So I think FDA has a you know, has a big sort of challenge ahead of it to explain to people, you know, 
why we do need, you know, certain types of clinical research to approve medicines that, you know, just getting, I mean, it's the same thing we went through, FDA went through with right to try and goes through in a lot of situations that just, you know, sort of pushing something out there because it seems promising isn't necessarily to the benefit of patients. And um, I mean, that was one thing Jesse Goodman really emphasized with his comments on the EUA experiences that we really need to make sure that um, regardless of what we do, we ensure that we preserve the ability to find out somehow whether a treatment works or not and what the safety profile is or not. And sometimes if you move too quickly um, to get it out there in a mass way or to market it formally, you sort of you take away any ability to get that clear answer. Um, and I think that's the big trade-off FDA has to figure out how to deal with and communicate. Then you have other people like um, former FDA Commissioner Mark McClellan, and I think he his concern is not so much with all these various pathways and thinking about it in that way. His concern is more thinking about, can we just change the system so we just get the better evidence and get the better evidence faster? And so he has ideas that I think come from a slightly different perspective, but his thought process is, you know, maybe everybody can sort of be happy if we can just get the high quality evidence faster. And, you know, he talks about, you know, could FDA have been given some authority in this pandemic to sort of have more control about what trials did or didn't get done so that you make sure, I know Janet Wilcock has kind of complained about this at different points that you don't have, you know, a hundred small trials that are going to lead to kind of inconclusive results because they're too small. So there's a lot of different, I think, ways and like kind of different um, people that come at the issue from sort of different philosophical approaches um, where you could probably come up with things from this EUA process to both sort of speed drug development and get patients therapy sooner without actually compromising some of the like data quality that other people want. Well, it's a, we, it's so, a, uh, sorry, go ahead, Derek. I was going to say, and we saw that with the vaccines. I mean, th those trials were done correctly and quickly, and we got evidence that was overwhelming. It, it was, you know, and there was no question on, you know, on any, on all three of them, really. I mean, in, so, I mean, th there's proof that they, that they're able to do this. It's just a matter of, you know, kind of the, you know, stopping that initial kind of what we saw that first kind of wave of, okay, everybody jumped in, you know, kind of head first and said, you know, and just started initiating things because nobody knew anything about what worked and what didn't work. And, um, you know, if there could be some kind of more organized way, maybe, you know, at from the beginning, that would have, you know, that's kind of like one of the big lesson, lessons learned from all this. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating uh, topic, Sarah, that sort of kind of, as you uh, noted, sort of kind of encompasses sort of kind of the, the whole of the philosophical debate around, uh, you know, what a regulatory agency should do and and how it should do it. And it's it's great to sort of use this, uh, um, uh, you know, the terrible pandemic as we're kind of to uh, try to address those uh, questions. And uh, um, we'll put all the links to the uh, the stories in the uh, in the show notes. But it's a, it's a three um, uh, story package, and one of them is this. Uh, um, uh, really uh, interesting uh, um, infographic that, uh, as you mentioned at the top of your discussion, sort of uh, notes that uh, um, uh, diagnostics uh, have always been sort of kind of uh, uh, used in the EUA pathway more often, but uh, especially now with the uh, the various uh, COVID tests, we had to sort of, kind of make a whole separate uh, circle of those because they didn't sort of fit in our uh, our standard uh, chart format uh, for that uh, <laughs> infographic. Just sort of, kind of driving home that uh, um, 
that point, and it'll be interesting to see how this all uh, shakes out in terms of sort of kind of what direction the agency uh, uh, heads and which direction sponsors uh, head. Uh, um, you know, if you look at uh, Remdesivir, it's sort of, you know, it's, um, the, they did uh, uh, everything right, you might say. They sort of got the EUA, and now they've got full approval, and still sort of people seem um, unsatisfied with the data. So uh, um, it's hard to say that sort of even when uh, um, all the boxes are checked, uh, everyone can be uh, can be satisfied, but uh, there needs to be some way to uh, to move forward on that stuff. And also, and, and you know, I, I I seem to be the one that always seems to harp on this, but I mean the 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 speed factor. Everybody loves the fact that this was these were all done quickly and quickly and correctly. And you know, and I, I think people are in for a reality check. You know, once we kind of get past this, whenever that is, hopefully sooner rather than later, where the FDA is going to say, okay, we're going back to the way things were at least, you know, somewhat, and we're not going to, you know, we're not going to work seven days a week. We're not going to work 24 hours a day. You're not going to get responses in an hour instead of a week, you know, and, and you know, there's going to be this kind of big shock snapback kind of thing going on because they just can't handle the speed and the pace that they're going right now long term. I mean, it's just, not, it's not sustainable. I mean, you hear that over and over. This is not sustainable. <laughs> Well, it's also, I guess it's not just the FDA side of speed. The um, the other thing that, um, for better or worse, helped some of this along was just the, the nature of the outbreak, right? When you have so many people getting sick um, fast it's, or concerned about getting sick, you know, it's easy to enroll large numbers of people in mm-hmm. clinical trials. Um, obviously, we know from other disease areas, just the enrollment is such a huge challenge. Um so you just can't expect if you have a rare disease that a company can, you know, snap its fingers <laughs> and get, you know, even a few hundred, never mind, you know, the tens of thousands of patients that um, of people that really were interested in participating in these vaccine clinical trials. So it's there's going to be speed issues on, you know, multiple fronts that impact, you know, how fast industry and the FDA can move in other areas. No, that's that's absolutely true. Um, <clears throat> so we're going to stay with Sarah for this next story. Uh, federal marching rights for drugs have been controversial for years, especially as outrage over drug prices grew. Sarah, so it seems like the pharmaceutical industry is in favor of this in the latest twist here. So, so they're in favor of um, a last-minute Trump era rule that um, would have pretty much made it impossible to use marching rights in a situation where um, the, the reason for that was because of the price of the product. Um, there's been a debate going on for a while as to whether the Baudel Act, which kind of says if a, a government invention that was licensed um, is not available to the public on reasonable terms, whether the price of the product sort of includes reasonable terms. There is this camp that basically says, which includes the drug industry usually, that, you know, if it's available, that sort of satisfies the law. Um, And there is sort of a camp that feels like if a high price makes it, you know, in theory available, but not really accessible, that doesn't. Um, And so, Pharma got a lot of what it would have would would like to see in terms of 
changes to how the bottle um, could potentially could potentially impact their business and their patents um, in a regulation that was issued at the very beginning of the year. The question now is, um, what does the Biden team do with this? They could essentially just drop it, but it seems like a lot of people feel like they can't just totally stop this process at all because there was so much time invested in the run-up to this um, rule being issued. And um, I know a lot of the sort of um, pro-lower drug costs um, groups that kind of push back on industry um, and its prices think are optimistic that they can just get this rule written. On the other hand, farm is actually pushing for it to be stronger um, than initially. Um, it was written, um, both pharma, the big capital P pharma lobby and the bio organization as well. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens. We, obviously, the current HHS secretary, which isn't in charge of this rule, it's a Department of Commerce rule, but HHS sort of gets a formal review and sign off on it, if you will. Um, so we know that the current HHS secretary has been one of the Democrats more willing to think about um, invoking margin rights when a drug is priced higher um, than people think makes it accessible. Um, and Vice President Kamala Harris has talked about this before in her political career. Um, but we've also seen Secretary Becerra, I think, pivot a little bit or at least shy away from promoting that idea so much in his nomination hearings. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if Democrats kind of change their tune on this issue in the Biden administration. Uh, you know, do they revise this rule, get rid of it overall? Um, if nothing else, I just found it interesting, like the degree of sort of interest and attention both sides are bringing to it makes you think like, you know, this issue is either coming to a head or not going away. Yes, yeah, sir. I think you made some really good points in your story about how the uh, uh, COVID situation sort of kind of cuts uh, both ways for uh, um, for pharma here. It sort of kind of, uh, you know, could sort of put a, uh, a warm glow on uh, um, on their requests because uh, people are grateful for the vaccines and the, uh, the pharmaceutical interventions uh, to address the pandemic. But it also uh, highlights how much of that was kind of as a result of uh, um, government uh, research and uh, funding, be it sort of directly through uh, Operation Warp Speed or sort of indirectly through the uh, the NIH and the, the development of all the um, the basic science that's sort of kind of contributed to the uh, um, the mRNA vaccines uh, um, earlier on. And so, uh, um, you know, it just uh, um, goes to show that sort of kind of even as a um, Farmers were kind of maybe winning some sort of relations battle that sort of kind of that almost were kind of opens uh, new uh, avenues for attack uh, on them. Well, and 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 it, it there there was also the report that came out uh, recently about you know saying that the you know remdesivir's the 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 federally the federal taxpayer funded research on remdesivir didn't actually produce any patentable discoveries. So you know, because that, I know that was one of the you know the products that they they kind of latched onto as like hey they you know the NIH did all the work on this and then you know pharma swooped in and and took it to market but um, you know that that kind of you know, you wonder if you know more of those types of reports are going to start emerging or you know analyses are going to start emerging and and people are going to start wondering if you know 
you know, while the, while the basic research itself is very important and a lot of these drugs don't get developed without it, if, you know, the, you know, that these kinds of arguments can, can, you know, can keep happening over, you know, whether it's pricing or, you know, whatever other, you know, uh, Right. Well, some of the, some of the areas this proposed rule deals with is kind of how you can determine like who's, what work, and what work kind of that was transferred over from the government, like, I guess, counts as like what work counts as sort of a company funded invention versus a government funded invention. Um, I'm probably botching some of the language. It gets very legal and technical, but you know, those are some of the things um, at deba in debate in this role that would then right impact like future determinations of kind of who did the work and who has the patent <laughs> rights and all that stuff. And that's even, that's even more complicated than just like the general um, concern I've heard about like, well, Martin sounds nice in theory. Usually most drugs have, you know, a handful of patents. Certainly a vaccine or a biologic is probably going to have um, many key patents. So if the government was just sort of responsible for one aspect of the invention, you know, what leverage is that um, in this kind of situation and how does that work? So it's it's an interest. It's certainly like an interesting topic in the drug pricing realm, but it gets um, pretty complicated quickly in terms of, as you mentioned, Eric, and how many cases, how many cases and how many drugs, even though the government may have had some hand in it, would it really be possible to use this particular um, tool? Yeah, I want to see the, I want to be at the, the court hearing where they try, they try and argue that, you know, there was like one patent that the government is responsible for and 50 other ones that they're not and that and you know how they resolve that whole thing <laughs> the uh, the government should do something like uh uh contract with uh um uh you know firms that do ANDA litigation it's sort of, kind of that uh, you know the, the firm can get a percentage of the uh um <laughs> of the uh, government sales if they're able to sort of get the uh, uh get the patent uh, um when that when those patent cases uh, so uh, yeah, there you go. <clears throat> Finally, today we're going to take a look at the FDA's popular pathway for quick oncology drug reviews and how not all oncology divisions at the agency are on board with it quite yet. It turns out that the oncology divisions in CBRR have yet to adopt real-time oncology review, a pathway developed by the FDA's Oncology Center of Excellence to speed some of their drug approvals. RTOR is open to supplements and some enemies now, and a CBER official said the other day that they are not using the program in part because inspections are complicated. He added that CBER did not believe that RTOR would necessarily speed up the applications themselves, even though CBER still works closely with OCE on application reviews and clinical trial requirements. Now, granted, biologics are much more complicated than drugs, which is, you know, which is, you know, that's that's a given, but I still found this interesting in part because there has been all this talk about making products outside of oncology, you know, available for this program. And there's a lot of enthusiasm about it and people wanting to use it. And yet not even all the oncology divisions at FDA are using it quite yet. <laughs> it seemed like a big um, aspect to why they're not using it um, in some places in CBER was this was the manufacturing complexity that perhaps if you have a product where the manufacturing is so key to um, key to the review, and that's 
commercial scale up isn't ready yet. You just can't speed certain things up. Yeah, it, it certainly would warm the uh, um, uh, industry's heart to sort of hear emphasize, FDA emphasizing that the uh, the process is the product. But uh, um, <laughs> right. the flip side of that is we're going to the uh, the process can delay the product approval, so uh, um, they have to worry about that. Yeah. yeah, I think this is an issue that we when breakthrough therapy kind of first became avail widely available that they you know that there were manufacturing questions and a lot of warnings from the agency to make make sure that the manufacturing um, issues were taken care of early if you're going to try and use the pathway and, and so forth but um, yeah it's a you know this is just one of those you know things that you don't expect to hear and all of a sudden you know it kind of pops up and you you just kind of do a double take that you know <laughs> we could potentially see this in use for a lot of drugs and still not see it in use for some oncology products well, I think you're right, Jared. That's sort of kind of the, uh, you know, the Cibro oncology products, uh, um, you know, given their, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, gene therapy or, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, cell-based, uh, um, uh, you know, therapy issues would sort of seem like uh, uh, poor candidates for sort of kind of something that's sort of kind of is, uh, um, you know, supposed to, uh, um, you know, move that uh, quickly given sort of how novel they are. And, you know, have you written about sort of kind of how uh, um, overtaxed, uh, um, in particular, that sort of uh, section of Cebra fields and, you know, how they're probably going to be getting new resources as part of the new uh, uh, user fee uh, um, uh, iteration uh, uh, when that gets renewed. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, you know, it, the cell and gene therapy area is, is one that's expected to, you know, really take off in the next few years. And they're trying to plan for that. But, yeah, it's, you know, again, it's, you know, another another aspect of this is that they can't they can't hire people fast enough and, you know, to, to kind of make make things go quicker and even if they even if they did have this they were fully stepped up there are things about cell and gene therapies that just don't want to go fast as much as we would like them to so well that's all for this week for more check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com you can also find this in previous podcast episodes on itunes google play TuneIn, soundcloud and spotify by searching for pharma intelligence and if you're so inclined feel free to give us a review Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Farmer Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe and we'll see you next time.